Well, welcome back to Open to Truth, a podcast all about exploring big ideas and discovering truth together. My name's Clinton. Hey, I'm Tony. And boy, I've had some things on my mind of late. Okay. I'm, I'm reading this book called The Five Proofs for the Existence of God by Edward Fazer. The Five. Uh, sorry, it might just be five. Okay, not, it's just five. Not okay. the exact five. Yeah, yeah. There's been many offered. Right, that's what I was thinking. Uh, so this is all about the discipline of natural theology. And what that means mm-hmm. is it's the project of trying to come to know what God is like, or maybe just in general what ultimate reality is like with just you know human reasoning and experience apart from that's a pretty broad definition man. apart from divine revelation okay so god in a world let's we're not claiming god exists quite yet if god exists then presumably that god could reveal itself to you right uh, and that would count as special revelation or yep. supernatural theology we're not counting any of that stuff just what i'm looking around the world and I'm sitting in my armchair reasoning. Can I reason my way to God yes. based on observation of the natural world? Yeah. Right. That's what natural theology attempts to do. So it constructs arguments. Mm-hmm. Do you have a? Do you have an issue with that? You said it was broad. Well, it just sounded... Um, I forget exactly what you said, but the project you first laid out sounded a lot like science. Uh, um, but I think you clarified it there. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so that's distinct from like if you go to if you go to church and they're preaching from the Bible, let's say. Yeah. You're you're not doing natural theology at that point. You're doing I guess you can call it supernatural theology, but right. it's the idea is that maybe God's revealed himself through the pages of the scripture and so I'm harvesting special that revelation. Would be special revelation. Rather right. than what's sometimes called general revelation, the way that God what what is revealed about God in nature or through human reason? Which is kind of like Paul writes about this in the first chapter of Romans, right? Something about the, this invisible God's attributes are clearly seen in nature, so that no man is without excuse. That's kind of what he's playing at. That's point. That's you, cited often. Is it? Yeah. Okay, but yeah. Um, can I just well on the fly? Let's see if I can do this quickly. Yeah. Uh, Romans one, because I'm forgetting the exact verse. So, but he's forming, he's trying to build a natural theology argument there. Well, I, no, I, I don't think so. You don't think so. Um, shoot, man. I don't know if I'm going to find it quickly enough. Basically, oh man, I wish I could find it. Oh, so for the wrath of God, this is a one eighteen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Oh, I see. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Okay. So this is pointed to all the time in support of the project of natural theology. And I just want to point out, there's this line in 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Sounds exactly so, like special right. revelation. So there's a sense where uh, if, yeah, how do I put it? You know, you'll hear people all the time say, I was looking out over this beautiful 
vista of creation, this mountain range or the expanse of ocean. Yep. And I just couldn't help but um, feel like there's something much larger than me. Some I, sense of transcendent beauty and something calling to me through that. And Right. Yeah. And so I'm thinking that this passage could be interpreted as like God is specially revealing that to you in that moment rather than like there's there's some kind of logical inference by just looking at big mountains and big ocean therefore god i'm questioning that yeah but that is kind of the style of argument that natural theology is promising right. look out in the world note make an observation and you could infer that god exists on the basis of it and you're saying you uh, dubious of the entire project of natural theology. Well, let me give you my little story. Sure, let's it's hear it. Story time. Yeah. So I went to, I don't know how far back I want to go. Let's just say to my seminary training okay. at Biola. Mm -hmm. And this is like the bastion of natural theology. Totally. A lot of the big boys come out of there. J.P. Moreland, Bill William Lane Craig. Yeah. And he's probably the most notable of them. I and mean, he's debated the who's who of the new atheists. Yeah. And, for decades now. Holy moly. I fell in love with Bill Craig's work when I was like 18. And you would say that that played a large role in you like revitalizing your faith, right? Oh, These absolutely. Arguments? Yeah, yeah. So I, not to hijack your story, but no. like when I was, so I was, yeah, raised in like an evangelical Christian home. And when I was about, I don't know, 17, 18 or so, uh, started to encounter objections to the Christian faith online that I didn't have good answers to. And I was like, huh, I should investigate these objections and try to figure out what good reasons are there for me to think that God exists and that Christianity is true and um, came across the work of William Lane Craig at reasonablefaith.org and just devoured his resources um, and was introduced. That was where I was first introduced to like, yeah, um, sound logical arguments mm -hmm. that um, attempt to yeah, give you good reasons to think that that God exists and that Christianity is true. And f I don't think any one of those arguments claims to tell the full story, but it's like a cumulative case that he's trying to build with mm -hmm. his cosmological, teleological and all of that. Um, and I found that really helpful because it felt like uh, it felt like a firm foundation or some sure footing. Uh, it wasn't sort of right. loosey-goosey. It's like, okay, the Kalam cosmological argument is based on observations about our universe and then rules of logic, and ta-da, we end up with God existing. How great is that? Um, so I really sunk my teeth into yeah. it, and it's a big part of why I stuck it out with Christianity, actually. Yeah, and I don't know if this will come out after or before <laughs> an episode that we recorded on f the value of philosophy, Yeah. but in any case, what a similar tendril there is it can be really, it sounds so nerdy to say, but it's a little bit intoxicating almost. Yeah drunk with power on the idea that I have kind of wrestled with my intellect nature into submission. And in this case, even God's own existence. Yeah. And it's not, doesn't have to come from a place of pride of like, I don't need the church or I don't need God himself to know. Yeah. But there is something about like, wow, there's like this secret knowledge. I've uncovered it. There's these special little arguments and factoids that once I get them, I, it's, it's unassailable. It's logically totally, man. waterproof, it, you know? It, the, it was like a inoculation against doubt or something, mm. you know? Like, like I really wanted to be certain about all of this stuff. And I don't think maybe the desire for certainty is necessarily bad. I think it might be unreasonable. Hmm. Um, 
but I wanted to be absolutely certain about this stuff. And of course, I mean, if we're talking about issues of ultimate importance, yeah. like eternity and where you spend it and what exactly, is there a heaven, is there a hell, and how do you get to one or the other? And it seems pretty important to figure that out. So, right. but over the years, I've become less convinced that, you know, that certainty is something God would require of us mm-hmm. or even desire for us necessarily. Yeah, so in my experience, like training under those guys at Biola, uh, I'm by no means a master of those arguments. They are. Mm-hmm. And some other of my peers have gone on to do more work in those areas. But I'm fairly conversant with them. And yeah. So excited about my career in philosophy of religion, I go to my PhD program and I run into the brick wall that is Paul K. Moser. Paul Moser. Uh, he's at Loyola University of Chicago. He's my dissertation advisor currently. And we're working through my dissertation together. But back in 2013 i took his phil religion class and boy he just kind of hit me over the head with this idea that well first of all like shrewd skeptics of the christian faith and of theism really don't accept any of these arguments Mm -hmm. and not only that but you should not have even expected for them to work in the first place wow and that was like a total paradigm shift for me. real shock a gestalt shift yeah. away from, yeah, this notion that I could kind of wrestle reality into submission with my mind. <laughs> now it's it's interesting that one of his claims is that the you know the shrewd skeptic doesn't these arguments don't go through because when you watch debates with Bill Craig, mm-hmm. I mean, by far and away most of those debates it seems like he walks away with the victory. He's laid out a far more concrete case than his opponents. Very rare that somebody has sort of risen to the occasion and actually torn down some of his arguments. I feel like, from memory, I think Daniel Dennett did about the closest job that I've mm. seen. Um, what do you think about like the pushback that he's just a very he's gifted a, orator? Oh, he's a fantastic debater, man. Yeah, yeah, he's just like because he he you got twenty minutes or whatever for your opening speech, and he's laying out like five. Too much content than anyone could get to, you know? You, yeah. I could not deconstruct all of these arguments in the time given to me. It's a longer conversation. So, right. And he's articulate and rehearsed and super good at rebutting. And people, like, there's... um, Yeah, I guess some people watching that may not have, like, training in philosophy. And to freshly hear, like, someone lay out a modus ponens-style argument. Yep. If P, then Q, yep. P... Therefore, Q. Yeah. And it just strikes someone as totally reasonable. Yeah. And all the arguments are laid out, and that really, that that is a valid inference pattern. Right. And the question is, are the premises true? And he does a fine job of trying to defend those. Yeah. And a lot of times, I don't know what the opponents are thinking. I mean, even Sam Harris, who I respect a lot, kind of drops the ball at times and uh-huh. not really, like, what the, the, um, the Craigian acolyte wants you to address that premise. Yeah. Don't bring up other stuff. Like, right, right. Attack the argument. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so that sometimes gets lost. And so we, you know, chalk up points for Craig. Yep. Uh, which I, yeah, when we were talking about winning debates, like. It's fantastic. You're right. Yeah. Like he's won a lot of debates. Yeah. Oh, man. I guess here, here's just so we can cut to the chase. Yeah. The. The main gripe that Moser has with natural theology, and now I have adopted as well, (laughs) is that, boy, I really don't think that the conclusion of these arguments, I'll even grant for a moment that, let's grant that they're valid and that the conclusion follows from the premises, but 
I just don't see the conclusion as getting you the kind of God that we ought to be interested in. Right. So that's in these arguments, I'm just quickly scanning the ones that I'm familiar with. Is there some defining of terms when it comes to what we even mean by God? So like, for example, um, I know the, the Kalam cosmological argument, boy, it's been a while since I've recited this, uh, Whatever begins to exist, exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has well, a cause. Well, that doesn't mention God at doesn't all. doesn't mention God, but then it, you, I think Craig would expand on that. Well, this co- what kind of cause could this be? Well, it would have to be immaterial. Uh, it would have to be beyond space and beyond time because those things are included mm-hmm. in the universe. So at best it gets you, and then he walks into what kinds of things fit that category? Abstract objects and unembodied minds. Well, abstract objects don't cause anything. Nothing's caused by the number three. Um, The only thing that could would be an agent, some kind of abstract mind. So, but that's about as far as you can get with that, right? It doesn't, if that's what you're calling God, I mean, you know nothing about their character. I mean, that's, that's the crucial point. Yeah, right. Is that I could, we could be inhabited or living in a world spawned by uh, an evil. Some malevolent mind. mind. Right. yeah. Yeah. And in fact, that's what the 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 thrust of the problem of evil, when conjoined with that, it's like, well, look, um, I mean, all these arguments get pushed on by the problem of evil, like even the design argument. Look at the complexity, yeah, or, or even irreducible complexity. There had to be this designer, like, well, but is the designer wholly good or yeah, omnibenevolent? Because there's a lot of things that seem not that don't have a great design, and yeah. that there's. I don't know, all sorts of predation and an immense amount of suffering. Um, so it doesn't tell it doesn't tell the full story that we want. Like if, if And what do you mean by we want? Well, here I am as a human searching for well, I think that's probably the best place to start. If I'm searching for God, what ex- who exactly am I searching for? What am I searching for? Mm-hmm. What do I want in a God? You know, what do I even mean by that word? Um, but I think that's like an I mean, you know that you're tiptoeing into my dissertation realm. Yeah. But like what has captivated me is that that idea is not expressed very often. Yeah. And because it's not that we're saying it's wishful thinking. I want there to be a God and for God to be like this. Therefore, he does exist. Right. That is not the claim. Right. It's that we as inquirers, we have the option whenever you would go to ask a question or look for something to set the search terms. Yeah. It's similar to like if you open up Google on the laptop. Here's a little bar, yeah. and you get to put in what you're looking for. Right. So that's what I want to do in my inquiry for this being. And so when you say, like, what kind of God do I want, what, Which, is, what is that? Because I understand that that would be uncomfortable. Some of the pushback I've gotten is like, well, you're just making God in your image, you know. You're making God however you want him to be. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, no, it's more like, there is a kind of being that I really hope exists, and I'd like to find out if they do. Because, yeah. man, that would really help my situation. So, like, what? What would you the know? things be? I'm tempted to just recite a dissertation. But, I mean, <laughs> when I think about my own deep existential desires, what do I want? I want... Um, I think I want my life to have meaning somehow. That's something that seems really existentially important to me. Um, I would like... Like significance? Yeah, yeah, right. Okay. I would like it to have significance. Uh, I would I would like to not cease to exist permanently. I'd like to carry on somehow. Yeah. I quite enjoy being here. <laughs> I would love that to continue, Yeah. you know. Um, right. And certainly 
uh, I won't, I guess, tiptoe too much into JP's stuff, but I want there to be some ultimate good that I can aim at and with my character. That, mm. And it feels like there is. Like, I can tell like when I am acting better or worse, you know, that yeah, that yeah. seems ingrained in me. So there, there is some ultimate good that I'm aiming at, and I wonder what's at the top of that, you know? Interesting. Um, so those are a few things that come to mind. And so I guess why not just think of God as that thing? I'm not saying that God exists, yeah. but God is that being that can ensure significance or ensure that your personal survival... So perhaps past your physical death this in is the hereafter. Right. Maybe what's helpful is the way you're using God there is more like a title than right. it is like a name. It is more like that. It's more like, yeah, we will ascribe the title God to the thing which fills those mm-hmm. categories. And so back to like Moser's critique of you shouldn't even expect them to work, that really threw me for a loop, these natural theology arguments, because what you're getting at is something totally different from the project of natural theology it's like yeah um don't you think yeah well i I because you're noticing just what do i want existentially yeah i'm going to tailor my concept of god for that and now be on the lookout for evidence yeah well that's different from making an observation about the outside world and let's see what it comes up with right don't you think yes i do think I do want to say, too, that, um, you know, I mentioned a second ago that something like the Kalam cosmological argument doesn't get you to this robust view of a God whose character you can know. But I I want to, in fairness to Craig and charity to those guys, I don't think he expects it to either. He's trying to build a cumulative case that would culminate in the resurrection of Jesus and say that that's the full revelation that we have of God. Yeah. Um, but to get to resurrection of Jesus, you need to presuppose that there is a god who raised him from the dead and there needs to be like all the arguments work together he mm. describes them as being like chain link male armor kind of thing they wow. depend on each other to build this picture of god so i wonder just to play devil's advocate in mm-hmm. in favor of nat- natural theology um w- if i'm starting my search uh, is there a god at all and i get to well there is at least potentially this unembodied mind that started everything aren't I a little bit closer to knowing that God than if I didn't have that argument? It's like, I'm obviously not seeing the full picture. An analogy might be like a a painting or something. I'm seeing just the outline of a nose, but I don't have the full face. I don't really know what he's like or what he looks like, but there's a nose there and I have suspicions that it's attached to a face. Maybe there's other arguments that would help me flesh it out. So this is where... and. And believe me, I'm. I feel like I'm still in process on this. I don't know if I, I'm fully there yet with it, just because of my, uh, well, I call it baggage, but my natural <laughs> theology baggage. But I yeah. think the idea is that whole way of even framing um, the journey, yeah, is not something that God would care about if God existed. Say more about that. So a lot of what you just mentioned has to do with. Um, beliefs, mm-hmm. propositions that a mind assents to. Yeah. Right. Yep. And you're wondering, well, isn't it, isn't it closer to theism to believe in Zeus than to believe in nothing at all? I am wondering. That. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, here's this 
bearded figure on Mount Olympus that's quite powerful and yeah. you know and can show up in different spots like isn't that like bumping things along toward a robust theism uh yeah propositionally like you're getting uh hmm. if you uh, if there's this we've mentioned this on the podcast before the encyclopedia of all the truths of the world yeah and um you could run down the list and put a green check mark next to the ones that you happen to hold as well mm-hmm. so as you learn you get more and more green check marks and you get closer to knowing this whole book great to have a green book does that is that something that god would care about if god existed you just acquiring more true Co- beliefs correct thinking so moser calls this spectator evidence hmm. similar to you're watching a basketball game and you can see lebron james dunk you're a spectator you're not in the game Right, wow. What God cares about is your moral and spiritual formation. And that can happen whether or not you're getting closer to the truth propositionally at all. Yeah. So there could be someone that is totally out to lunch on their beliefs having to do with what God is like. But ha- but the just to be a little bit more specific, I guess, the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit is really working in their life and producing good fruit and their character is being shaped into the image of the morally perfect God, but they don't have any of the attending propositional progress. Wow. So when you say like, doesn't that count for something that you're closer? I guess like in a very small way. In the intellectual sense, maybe. Yeah. But what's it doing for your experience of life and your character formation? And you're saying ultimately what God would desire is life lived with him, like, and character formed after yeah. him. Yeah, and this might be an annoying Bible verse to throw out, and I really don't mean it to be a cudgel. Yeah. But there's, like, the the verse, um, I forget who says it. I think maybe Jesus does. Even the demons believe and shudder. Yeah, that's James. Okay, James. I think. So that, that, that idea that these uh, totally evil beings or something have all of the true they, beliefs, let's say, right. about who God is and what God's like, and that's what actually makes them afraid. But they but, remain yeah. <laughs> untransformed. Right. Yeah. I mean, Jesus has a similar critique of you search the scriptures because you think in them you'll have eternal life. Mm. And I'm standing right in front of you. And right. You don't recognize me. Yeah. Yeah. So what what Moser pres- you know, prescribes instead of natural theology, he calls Gethsemane epistemology. Mm-hmm which is taken from the New Testament right before Jesus' death. He goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, one part of this prayer is, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. He's praying to God. Yeah. And in this way, yeah, it's this posture of submission to letting God work on your motivational center, your volition, your will, um, without coercion to be more like God rather than this epistemology of just trying to acquire true beliefs about what God is like wow. and piece together this little collage. and Yeah. I remember when you first told me about this, I had such strong resistance mm. to it, which is pretty typical when you're presented with a paradigm shift and your worldview is being threatened. Or for me, the the sure footing that I had worked so hard to find and and stand on was being threatened and I was going to tumble back down into this realm of chaos where I don't know what to 
believe or why I should believe it. There's something about the, um, like if if experience is is sort of at the front of your um, epistemic, what am I saying? Pursuits, I guess. Like if it feels a little more loosey goosey than yeah. Then here's this rigid, tight, reasonable argument. Um, well, and it's I think maybe the word subjective. I don't know. Yeah. But, um, these arguments seem like they're objective. They're facts outside of me. It's not wishful thinking. I'm not making this up. And I can use them to convince others. I can use them to persuade you. That is one of the... Right. Well, I don't know if it's a drawback. Some would see it that way. Yeah. But with this Gethsemane epistemology, I can't prove to you or show you that God exists. Yeah. In the sense that you should be rationally persuaded to adopt my beliefs. Yeah. I can tell you my testimony about how when I submitted to the divine will or the divine call, then my character started to change and my life's transformed. I can wow. share that story with you, yeah. but it's not this uh, like mathematical argument or proof that yep. necessitates the conclusion. The um, There's also, at least I found in my life, there was a temptation to stagnate in my pursuit of God when I was in the realm of natural theology. So it's like, hmm. yeah, I figured that all out. I got that sorted, neatly packaged up and put it on a shelf. Yeah. I have all my reasons. I don't need to re-explore those. You know? So I'm not really open to learning in that area anymore. I kind of got it figured out. Um, Pete Enns has a book, The Sin of Certainty, Why God Desires Our Trust More Than Our Correct Beliefs or something, um, that I found really helpful. I'd recommend reading that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sin, the of, Sin, of Sin of Certainty by Pete Enns. Um, yeah, that that helped change and challenge some of my thinking on this stuff as well. And the basic um, gist there is that... Well, is that... Well, to your point, correct beliefs is probably not what God ultimately desires from mm-hmm. us. And I think that makes sense when you think about it. Well, I, but just to, like, for our, like, more evangelical friends out there, I feel like that's something really ground into you from an early age you have to believe it right or you go to hell i mean there's so many and it's it's not from a bad motivation there's a lot of little programs like i don't know what they're called like quiz challenge like we're memorizing bible verses yeah my seminary training was very much like fill in the right answer on the test about what does the scripture say about god and that's not entirely bad either but um it can if you're not careful and without a mentor to guide you through that let's say the the whole tenor of it is just building up this intellect yep. of and have and just being really smart i guess about the bible and about theology that i miss out on what really matters being in the game yep. let's say of having the spirit transform my heart which i think at its worst is actually like a grab for control this idea that if i just align my mental furniture right then i'll be okay Right. Then I'll be saved. Then God will be favorable with me. You know, mm-hmm. it's actually on me to align my thinking to be right. Well, Clinton, you just needed better instructors or whatever, or leaders to show you that it's both. It's a both and. Do yeah. the training and do the spirit work. Well, I hear what you're saying, but part of me, part of my story, I feel like is that this whole paradigm of propositions matter a lot made Mm -hmm. it difficult like was a stumbling block or an obstacle to 
this transformative Gethsemane epistemology. It just says, I don't know if they're entirely compatible. It's just a different priority shift, um, perception change on what yeah. really matters. So another way maybe to, maybe another thread to pull on against natural theology here, just to bring it more down to earth. And this is coupled with maybe some evangelical doctrine on like afterlife and mm-hmm. punishments and rewards and stuff. So sure. one thing that's worrisome about natural theology, and this this may sound pejorative, but I don't I don't think it is. I think it's really what it's saying. It's claiming that if you only knew a little bit more science and philosophy, then you could get enough evidence to know that God exists. Yeah. And so like when Moser framed it to me in that way, it's like, wow, why why would God care so much about that? And isn't that kind of brutal? Like yeah. a lot of people don't enjoy academic philosophy or, or science. Un- and or, or aren't great at thinking through things. And or- many will not have access to it. And it just seems super unfair that something, if it really is that important yeah. to the journey of coming to faith for a lot of people, it's such a high bar of entry because it's not just listening to the two premises and a conclusion from Craig and his 30 minute talk on it. I mean, this gets into a whole question of how much do you have to read and research in order to be justified in believing it. But there are thousands of articles in databases of people writing for and against the Kalam cosmological argument. It's dizzying. You, you could have a whole career and specialty in the Kalam cosmological argument. Yeah. And like, are we saying that God wants people to run through all of that philosophy in order to work out? Is it really true? Is it really not true? It just doesn't seem right to me. So anymore. <laughs> let me, um, I don't know, poke at you a little bit or at least yeah. quiz you on. So then um, how we, we said that maybe there isn't this publicly available evidence that would be compelling to other people. Like I can't convince necessarily other people of my experience of God, but how then should I, or should you expect to come to know God? And, and uh, how can you know anything about him? Are you saying it's, it's all special revelation, Holy spirit just illuminates the mind. Um, like, Practically, what does that look? Where does that leave us? Where then should I look for God, and how sh- how should I know if He is showing up in my life? What does special revelation even look like? Wow. Well, I think that. I mean, I'm probably jumping the gun a little bit. Yeah. There's probably there's a lot more to be said, but if we're saying that God is morally perfect, then what that means, at least, is that He wants what's best for human beings. And I think what's best for human beings is to enter into a non-coercive relationship with God in such a way that their characters become more like God. More like his. And so when I have, man, like I said, it's going to be tough for listeners and yourself maybe to, I don't know how much um, epistemological work what I'm about to say right. will do. It shouldn't convince me necessarily, right? right? <laughs> but yeah. it's um, the experience of like this, this I-thou relationship huh. of this divine call, yep. the calling out to me, this authoritative whisper yep. to change my life. To It's wow. the, it's the speaking that, through the human conscience yeah. to direct me 
and to to put it the old school language to the paths of righteousness to the good let's say um and when i respond positively to that call i am transformed and moser the shocking claim is that i i myself become evidence for god the personifying evidence so i have this little quote here he says are we willing to be let led out of the wilderness by an intentional rescuer who seeks to transform us non-coercively from selfishness and pride to unselfish love. If we are willing, the crucial evidence for God can be clarified and deepened in such a way that we ourselves become personifying evidence of God as newly recreated children of the living God who willingly receive and reflect God's moral character. That's awesome. Yeah. Well written. That's great. (laughs) So that's the... That's the idea is that I I become evidence for myself through my transformed character, yep. receiving this divine call. It is, you know, um, knowledge by acquaintance yep. with a being that's speaking to me to yeah. be a little bit more metaphorical. Um, and I'm in the game at this point. Yeah. I'm doing, I'm part of the journey that God actually wants for me yeah. rather than just the pro- the propositional intellect level now those things might come throughout this process Mm -hmm. i might come to learn things about god and hopefully i do i want to be able to know the rescuer by name yeah and relate to that being on a personal level that's great i want to know more yeah um but it's uh secondary to this primary place that's awesome dude. yeah now a couple two last things before we wrap up one uh if you if you write in, I would let, and say, "Hey, I get like the idea of maybe why we shouldn't expect the arguments to work, but boy, I really feel like some of them do." Yeah. So it's that old thing like one man's modus ponens is another man's modus tollens. Like, do you think the argument works this way? Well, I think it's true. The success of one of these arguments would make myself and Moser wrong. Right. So if the wor- if the arguments are sound and cogent, then. I'm wrong. Right. So if you are interested in these, we could do some episodes on the ontological argument, yeah. cosmological, teleological, moral argument. I'd, it'd be good for me to brush up on and it. And run through those. So that's one. Two, you might be wondering, okay, well, like you ended up studying philosophy. What What is the place of argumentation mm. in Christian theology and philosophy? And I think the place of it goes back to the beginning when Tony was sharing his story where uh, he was confronted with objections to the Christian faith. Yeah. And he wanted to know if there are reasonable answers. That is awesome. I love that. Yeah. And I feel like in a lot of ways I've given my life to that. And that's called apologetics. Yeah. That, strictly speaking, is a defense of a worldview. And so I love using argument and evidence to combat the other arguments that are seeking to tear it down. Yeah. Right? Because those those arguments against are trying to play on publicly available data yep. to undermine the justification or evidence that we have that God exists. But that's different from, is it polemics? Polemics? That's different from polemics. Polemics. Which is an attack. Yeah. And that's essentially what the natural theology arguments are. It's going on the offensive. They're not defensive arguments. Yeah. They're, here are these premises, and the conclusion purportedly is that God exists, and you ought to believe them on pain of irrationality. You don't want to be irrational. 
Right. So they're an attacking structure, whereas the apologetics is I'm defending the faith against objections, which I think is great. So yeah. when people bring up the problem of evil or miracles are impossible or we can't know things about, you can't know anything possibly about the resurrection of Jesus because there's something about the discipline of history that forbids the supernatural. Those are all objections and we need that we can defend folks yeah. to come to the defense of that and offer arguments against. That's mm-hmm. great. Um, That's good. It's a good distinction. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So if you have any more comments or want to see some episodes on the actual natural theology arguments, we'd be happy to do so. Feel free to like and subscribe. Write a review on iTunes. Uh, and I think the biggest one we're noticing is share on social media. Yeah. Super easy to say, hey, enjoyed this episode. Share. Pass it on to a friend. That goes such a long way to letting other people enjoy the content. Yeah. Thanks right. for listening. Thanks for watching. And uh, we'll see you next time.